0: Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time one of the great scandals of our time, the health inequalities that mean a man living in central Blackpool can expect to die 27 years earlier than his counterpart in an affluent district of London. That stark figure from research by Imperial College in London, show that life expectancy for women fell in almost one in five communities in England in the decade before the pandemic. Whilst researchers at York University's Centre for Health Economics found that cuts to public services led to 57,000 deaths more than would otherwise have been expected in the four years after austerity was implemented in 2010 by the coalition government. Professor Sir Michael Marmot has made studying these trends his life's work.
1: You hear these discussions. Oh, I'm gonna beat Margaret Thatcher all over again. I'm gonna cut posterity's good thing. Hang on, forget ideological ideas about low tax, high tax, whatever. People are dying. They're getting sicker. It isn't working. This is not some arbitrary experiment about do we want a low tax or a high tax or are we this kind of right wing, left wing, whatever wing. People
0: are dying. Along with the passion you can hear there, we'll have cool, measured analysis about how this shocking state of affairs has come about. And Sir Michael will be joined by Byline Times writer Sam Bright, author of a forthcoming book, Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. He'll be doing his best to explain why health inequality, a matter of life and death, is routinely underreported. First, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. A great read, an ideal Christmas present. Find out how to subscribe at BylineTimes.com. Right then, Health Inequality with Sam Bright and first Michael Marmot. Professor Marmot is Director of the Institute of Health Equity at University College London and was author of a government-commissioned report, Fair Society, Healthy Lives, a.k.a. The Marmot Review, which was published in 2010 and revisited last year. He's been telling me how his work evolved.
1: I had chaired the World Health Organisation Commission on Social Determinants of Health and we reported in 2008... And we said on the cover of that report, social injustice is killing on a grand scale, which was a bit unusual for a WHO publication. It was, in a way, pointing the finger at governments, at what they had and had not done. Gordon Brown was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and he asked me, could we translate the findings and recommendations of this global commission for one country? Essentially, Alan Johnson, who was Secretary of State for Health, said, I don't think we've made enough progress in reducing health inequalities. We wanted to do better. And your WHO commission suggests that perhaps we could. Could you translate the findings and recommendations for England? We conducted a new review, got 80 experts from around the country, and we said that In our judgment, you could reduce health inequalities, that Alan Johnson was right. The level was too large of inequalities in health. And we made six domains of recommendations. Give every child the best start in life. Number two, education and lifelong learning. Number three, employment and working additions. Number four. Everybody should have at least the minimum income necessary for a healthy life. Number five, healthy and sustainable places and communities. And number six, what I call taking a social determinants approach to prevention. So we said you can do it. and We called the report Fair Society, Healthy Lives. The idea being this social justice idea, create a fairer society, health will improve and health inequalities will get smaller. So that was the 2010 Marmot
0: Review. What did you find in 2020?
1: Literally the 10-year anniversary, February 2020, we published Health Equity in England, the Marmot Review, 10 years on. And my simple summary was we lost a decade, and it shows. We looked at life expectancy. Roughly speaking, for 100 years, life expectancy had improved about one year every four years. That's remarkable. Six hours every 24 hours. The end of the day, you've got another six hours added onto your life expectancy. Quite remarkable. That had gone on for a century. And it was quite reasonable to believe that health would keep getting better all the time. And in 2010, that rate of increase slowed dramatically and just about ground to a halt. Dramatic slowdown. What happened in 2010? A new government was elected, the Conservative-led coalition government. They said, surely you can't be suggesting it was anything we did that could have led to this slowdown. Well, I'm a scientist. We need to look at that possibility and see what we could conclude. One suggestion was, well, maybe we've reached peak life expectancy. It's got to slow down sometime. It can't keep going on forever. So we looked at other countries. What a radical idea Um, see what's going on elsewhere. And it turned out the slowdown in improvement in life expectancy in the United Kingdom was more marked than in any other rich country except Iceland and the United States. So no, we had not reached peak life expectancy. The second major finding was that the social gradient had increased. And by that, I mean, if you classify people by where they live and classify where they live by level of deprivation, the greater the deprivation, the shorter the life expectancy. It's a gradient. It's not just that poor people have shorter life expectancy than everybody else. They do. But it's a gradient. The less the deprivation, the longer the life expectancy. Over the decade, that gradient had got steeper. The inequalities had got bigger. And there was an important intersection with region, which is really interesting, really important, and we really, really need to get to the bottom of it. If you're rich, it doesn't much matter from the point of view of life expectancy, where in the country you live. The more deprived you are, the greater the health disadvantage of living in the northeast or the northwest compared with London and the southeast. So you look, as you go down the scale, greater deprivation, bigger regional differences. So we looked, for example, at women, in the least deprived 10%, very small regional differences, life expectancy went up a little bit over the decade. For the most deprived 10%, life expectancy went up in London, huge regional differences, and it went down for virtually every region outside London. So we've got three... Aspects of the health picture over the decade from two thousand ten to two thousand twenty, life expectancy stopped improving. The inequalities got bigger, and life expectancy for the poorest people went down. My goodness, this is not supposed to happen. So then the question: This is not just now a sort of airy fairy intellectual question. Could government policies have played a role? Um, This is a matter of life and death. And we looked at it. And the first thing was that the government that was elected in 2010 made no secret. This wasn't subterfuge. Their mission was to roll back the state. Their mission was austerity. They said, we've got to get the public finances. We need a smaller state. That's what we're going to do. And they did it, by golly. In 2010... Public sector expenditure was 42% of gross domestic product. By 2019, that 42% had shrunk to 35%. So, massive reduction. And governments like to be in balance if they can. A rate of taxation of 35% puts us at the low end of European countries, still significantly higher than the United States but at the low end of European countries. 42% is in the middle of the range. 35% means we're pretty miserly when it comes to public expenditure. Second, if you look at spending by local government, spending per person, then we see that the cuts were done in a regressive way. I had coined the rather unfortunate phrase in my 2010 review, proportionate universalism. It was a rather ungainly attempt to forge a marriage between Nordic Scandinavian type universalist policies that apply to everybody and classic Anglo-Saxon approaches, which is you target the worst off. So I said we wanted universalist policies with effort proportionate to need. After all, the NHS is that. It's a universalist system. It's available to all of us, but the effort is proportionate to need. If you're lucky, you don't need it at all. And if you're plagued by multiple diseases, you need it a lot. Effort proportionate to need. So if you look at spending by local government per person by level of deprivation, In the least deprived quintile, 20%, the least deprived 20% of areas, the spending per person went down by 16% from 2010 on. And then the greater the deprivation, the greater the reduction in spending. In the most deprived quintile, the spending went down by 32%. So what we got was effort inversely proportionate to need the greater the deprivation, the greater the need, the greater the need, the greater the reduction in spending. So you look at these two figures, the reduction in spending overall, and the regressive way it was applied, and then ask, could that have made a contribution to our slowdown in health improvement, increase in inequality, worsening health for the poorest people? Yeah, I think it could subsequent to my 2020 report other analyses have shown that the greater the reduction in public spending in geographically the less the improvement in life expectancy or even reduction and the recent imperial college report confirms what we said said in the poorest 10% 12% 18% of Areas or the worst off, they, they didn't look at deprivation, but the ones that were doing worse, there was actually a decline in life expectancy. Now, this really, really isn't supposed to happen. And you hear these discussions. Oh, I'm gonna beat Margaret Thatcher all over again. I'm gonna cut posterity's good thing. Hang on, forget ideological ideas about low tax, high tax, whatever. People are dying. They're getting sicker. It isn't working. This is not some arbitrary experiment about do we want a low tax or a high tax or are we this kind of right wing, left wing, whatever wing. People are dying. And the experiment's been done. If you cut public services, if you make poor people poorer, their health deteriorates. So that's where we are now.
0: I share your passion for this, Michael, and we understand that there are great challenges ahead of us as a country and as a planet. So climate change, quite rightly, occupies centre stage at the moment. I would argue that this story is certainly from the point of view of deprived individuals just as important, yet it has occupied nothing like the column inches. Nothing like the headlines of climate change. And as I say, that's not to to downgrade the importance of climate change, but the fact that in one part of the country, you might die on average 27 years earlier than in another part of the country and that that gap is widening. I just find remarkable that that is not a hot political issue.
1: I do too. I I wrote a commentary for The Lancet at the beginning of the pandemic, and let's come on to the pandemic in a moment, but at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, I wrote a commentary for The Lancet, and I said that Grenfell Tower caused justifiable outrage. 71 people died. But as you'll know well, Grenfell Tower is situated in the London borough of Kensington and Chelsea. In the area around Grenfell, life expectancy for men was 16 years shorter than in the rich part of the borough of Kensington and Chelsea. So the conflagration of Grenfell Tower rightly captured attention. What about the slow burn of inequality that's been going on for decades And getting worse. And the poorer people are dying sooner. And then, of course, comes the pandemic. You'll remember at the beginning they said it was the great equalizer, you know, because people coming back from skiing holidays in Austria and France were getting sick and so on. Um, But we knew it wasn't going to be the great equalizer. We knew that it would expose the underlying inequalities in society and amplify it. And so it proved. We did a report. Well, firstly, we did a report which we called Build Back Fairer, the COVID-19 Marmot Review, published in December 2020 and 10 months after my 10-year-on review. And we showed the social gradient in mortality from COVID-19, which looks rather similar to the social gradient in all-cause mortality. And the fact that both the pandemic and the societal response to the pandemic made inequalities worse, made inequalities worse. And we said we need to build back fairer. We don't simply want to reestablish the status quo. The February 2020 report showed us the status quo from the point of view of health is unacceptable. I was talking to dentists, a group of dentists, and I put up a graph with an identical social gradient to the COVID-19 mortality, but I didn't put the label on. Let them look at it. Then I put the label on. It was dental caries in children. It shows an identical social gradient. Then I was talking to a group of primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in primary care, and I put up a graph without the label. Then I put the label on. It was obesity in year six children. What's going on? COVID's a virus. Dental caries due to nutrition and bad oral hygiene, whatever, childhood obesity. It's not a virus. And it takes me back. Think about AIDS in South Africa. You remember when Talam and Becky said it's due to poverty and malnutrition. It's not due to a virus. So one needs to be careful here. When I say we've got to deal with the underlying inequalities, I'm in no way denying that COVID's due to a virus and we have to control the virus. But what we're hearing is well, a race between vaccination and the virus. Well, yeah, vaccination is very important, but so is the organisation of society. And It's not just about controlling the virus. It's about dealing with the inequalities in society, making the economic arrangements that allow social distancing, isolation, and so on. So it is with dental caries, so it is with childhood obesity. We need to deal with the specifics of disease control, but we also need to deal with the organisation of society that makes these inequalities manifest. And we need them both at the same time. So we need to be thinking about Build Back Fairer. We did this report for Greater Manchester, Build Back Fairer in Greater Manchester. In the northwest region, of which GM is a big part, mortality from COVID-19 was 25% higher than the England average average. And in 2020, so on top of what had happened in the decade up to the pandemic, in 2020, life expectancy for men in the Northwest region fell by 1.6 years and 1.2 years for women. Now, it fell pretty strikingly in England as a whole, but an even bigger fall in the Northwest. I'm delighted that climate change is on the agenda absolutely right that it should be. How do we get equity on the agenda in the same way and take the action needed to combat the climate crisis at the same time as we're taking the action that's needed to create greater health equity?
0: Sam, in your research, have you discovered why this isn't a hotter political topic than it is? Because clearly all of us here think that it should be. It is literally a matter of life and death.
2: One aspect, evidently, from what's been said is that there is a clear regional geographical element to it all. And unfortunately, power is concentrated quite heavily in this country. In fact, very heavily, more heavily than anywhere else in the developed world, in the capital, in London. And so journalists, unfortunately, do cover the city in which they are based. And we've seen huge cutbacks in the media industry over the past 20 years, a massive decline in local journalism, which I think has had knock-on effects in terms of the coverage of these sorts of issues. And I think we saw in the elections of 2016 and 2019, A revolt against that from what has been coined the left-behind communities, the communities that don't feel as though their lives are being reflected in general discourse. I also feel as though it's a problem that does exist in silos. I think for someone living in the poorest neighborhoods in Blackpool, for example, I think it's quite difficult to envisage what life might be like and the extent of life expectancy in some of the richest areas of London, because the divergence in experience is so profound that there simply isn't a reference point for people. And there's certainly not a reference point for the media who would never go to Blackpool aside from at a general election campaign. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen such a surprise from political commentators, because elections are the only moments when politics isn't an elite hobby anymore. It becomes something for the people to actually contribute to an election. Everyone goes out to the ballot box. The media is forced to go to the poorest neighbourhoods in the country and cover the issues. And then in those two or three days, we see reality dawn on the political commentators who've been spouting about the political horse race in Westminster for too long and not talking about regional issues.
0: It's a curious... Phenomenon, though, isn't it? Because the people who you describe as the left behind, a commonly used phrase, I know, but the people who are described as left behind, their rebellion or their revolt against being ignored is to vote for the policies of austerity that lead to these unequal health outcomes.
2: Yeah, which I think, again, is a reflection of the information age that we're in, the age of distortion. That means that unfortunately, you know, I think we'd all have Michael writing a column for the most prominent newspapers in the country every week, but the newspapers would rather publish shock jock agitators and particularly the most widely read newspapers in the country. We have an aversion to experts now that has only mildly resuscitated during the coronavirus pandemic and has now been quite brutally repressed when the government decides it doesn't want to follow expert opinion anymore which means that we have a great repression of information um, and of understanding of these issues which is a sad thing for the country i mean i was speaking to andy burnham the greater manchester mayor a couple of weeks ago and he said that people really blamed both central and local government for austerity because although it was imposed by central government, it was obviously local council services that were cut. So people blamed the council, the authority that was imposing austerity for the underlying cause of austerity, when in actual fact, it was the deprivation of funds handed down to councils from central government that was the cause. And I think that complexity really confused in people's minds who exactly was to blame for this for this situation that plenty of people have been pushed into.
0: Yes, if the council closes a daycare centre because it's had reduced funding from central government, people look at the council because they closed the daycare centre down, not the central government, which has withdrawn the funding. Michael, one of the first things that you said was, as, as part of your principles, was the idea that this can change. This is not fixed but this is something we can fix. So if I were to give you control of public health England, and we should stress here we are talking primarily uh, about England, what would you do to reverse these inequalities of health?
1: Well, the first thing to recognise is that organised public health has a role to play, but it's not just about public health. Child poverty went up over the decade after housing costs, in 2010, about 27% of children were in poverty. By the end of the decade, that 27% had risen to 30%. Public Health England, quite apart from the fact that it was broken up in the middle of a pandemic, Public Health England can't deal with child poverty. We've got a housing crisis. Public Health England can't deal with a housing crisis. The spend per pupil, on education, went down by 8% from 2010. Public Health England can't deal with that, but that's vital to the health of the public. We've had a freeze in public sector pay. Public Health England can't deal with that. And 300,000 extra children thrown into poverty by removing the upgrade to universal credit. And these are all vital to the public health. So that's the first understanding. Public health can be the advocate. By the way, will you allow me a mini rant? Please don't use the word disparities. When the government abolished Public Health England and moved half of it into the Department of Health and Social Care, they created the Office for Health Improvement and Disparities and you both used the word disparities earlier, disparity was the rather bloodless term that the Americans used when inequality was too hot politically. And I've had senior Americans say to me, we were in government saying, we were envious of you British that you could talk about inequalities. We weren't allowed to use the word. We had to talk about disparities. We've got an equalities minister. The opposite of equality is not disparity, it's inequality. But the whole point being that we need a cross-government strategy. And yes, the head of Public Health England or what was left of it can be the advocate for that, can be the planner, can be the architect. But it's got to be a cross-government strategy. And it means a commitment to equity to fairness, to social justice. This is vitally important. And then I'd like to think that my Build Back Fair reports give them the building blocks. It tells them what to do. You want to level up, here you are. I've given you the six domains of recommendations. You need to reverse the increase in child poverty. You need to reverse the cuts in education spending. Teachers have lost 10% of their salaries since 2010. You could start paying teachers. You could start paying people working in adult social care. So there's not one thing. What I would do is put equity of health and well-being at the heart of all government
0: policy. Strikes me, Sam, that this does not have to be a party political debate. The idea of social justice, the idea of children living safe, healthy lives, should be one that everybody who's got a decent bone in their body should subscribe to.
2: Yeah, certainly. And I think we're getting to that stage. I think we're probably going to see, coming up to the next election, a quite fierce competition between the two main parties as to who can offer the most generous levelling up programme, which hopefully will include health inequalities alongside a lot of other ideas. I've looked at, in my book, again, taking the radical idea that Michael had of uh, looking at other countries. And Germany is a fascinating example where regional inequalities are, are concerned in particular, because obviously Germany was a divided state going into the 1990s. One half of the country was profoundly richer than the other half and yet the notion of knitting together the country again was not party political it was embedded in the very fabric of the nation that was the goal of the nation over the next 30 years and as a result we've seen a dramatic reduction in inequalities between east and west germany to such an extent that some of the inequalities that we see between london and the rest of the uk are actually more profound than the gap between east and west germany presently and that's because we've seen trillions of pounds worth of investment from the german government regardless of political party denomination and the rest and an acceptance from everybody that this is the sort of country that needs to be created
1: i think it's a state of our politics that a leader like Angela Merkel looks like an absolute heroine in an earlier stage of politics. If you were left of centre, you would have been against Angela Merkel. If you were right of centre, you might have said she was a bit colourless and not charismatic. But it's a state of politics in the world. She looks like a heroine. she's sensible um she listens to science. She levels with people. She tells the truth about the state of the pandemic. The rates of COVID-19 in Germany now are one-sixth of what they are in the UK, the number of new cases. Um, Germany handled the pandemic very well. It's tempting to say that they had a leader who listened to scientific evidence, leveled with the public, didn't talk in slogans or cliches, and didn't talk. She was neither a libertarian nor a social control freak. I think it's a dreadful statement about our politics that she can look like a heroine because she's a woman of common sense and decent person. Heavens, And in fact, the SPD leader seems likely to take over, was her chancellor, was her finance minister. So it's uh, the German election saying, we want more of the same. He might be a bit left of centre, she might have been a bit right of centre. We quite like sensible politics, as distinct from what we've ended up with in this country. These issues are too important for party politics, and Personally, I've tried in public not to identify with particular political parties. I'm very happy to work with the party in power, whichever complexion that is, if they want to take action to improve health and reduce health equity. And I've spoken to politicians of all the parties. One senior Labour politician said to me, we're decent people. Why aren't we getting our message across? And I thought, God, he must be desperate if he's asking me, um, of all people. So I said, I've got no idea. But I can tell you what I do. And what I do is tell the truth, argue from the evidence, and engage people in a discussion about social justice. And that's where I'd like us to go to. Tell the truth, argue from the evidence and argue in a spirit of social justice.
0: Professor Sir Michael Marmot and with him, Sam Bright, whose book, Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital, is available now on pre-order. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this has been the Byline Times podcast, which is funded by subscription to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. If you want to get in touch, you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com or join the conversation on Twitter at bylinetimespod. Thanks for listening. See you next time.